0: I am eager to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to you today from 1st Corinthians chapter 6, and so I'd like to invite you to turn there with me in your Bibles, 1st Corinthians 6. Wendy, what a gift you are to our church. Thank you for uh, your heart for the unborn and for your action in that area, and to all who serve on the pro-life team. What a gift that ministry is to us today is sanctity of human life sunday at the outset there are two books that i want to recommend on the topic of abortion it could be that you haven't uh studied this deeply from a biblical perspective or thought much about it those two books are the case for life equipping christians to engage the culture by scott klusendorf Uh, scott klusendorf is a leading pro-life apologist and uh, does wonderful work. And then Why Pro-Life is the other book uh, by Randy Alcorn. Caring for the unborn and their mothers. It is an excellent introduction to the pro-life position. Uh, as a church we want to have biblical convictions on this issue. We want to seek justice for the unborn. And we want to care for women in crisis pregnancies and to care for the many men and women who are devastated by post-abortion trauma. Uh, I want to say at the outset that when we address issues that are politically or culturally charged, uh, as we did last week with racial justice and ethnic harmony and as we are doing today with abortion and the protection of the unborn, as we address issues that are politically or culturally charged, it cannot be emphasized strongly enough that these are biblical matters that transcend the political. There are certainly political implications to any number of issues. We greatly desire to see laws that protect the lives of the most vulnerable, But it needs to be said that abortion is not primarily a political issue, but a biblical issue. Meaning, we believe that Christians across the political spectrum must care deeply about the lives of the unborn. And spend any amount of time in our church, and you will learn to the chagrin of some that we are not captive to any political party. Nor are we united around support for or opposition to any political party or a candidate. Our allegiance is to Christ alone. And our commitment is to preach the whole counsel of God and to apply the gospel to all of life. Including the pressing issues of our day on which the church cannot remain silent. Our sermon title today is... And such were some of you. And such were some of you. And we'll look at 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. I'd like to invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 9. This is God's holy and authoritative word. And do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards. Nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the Spirit of our God. May God bless the preaching of His Word. You may be seated. The Grammy Award winning hip hop artist LeCrae has courageously and publicly shared his story of his involvement in abortion and how he advocated to end the life of his own child through abortion in 2002. In one of his songs, he explains that he was living in sin, drugs, drunkenness, and sexual immorality, and that he got a woman pregnant. The lyric to that song says, we heard a heartbeat that wasn't hers or mine. The miracle of life had started inside. He talked her into having an abortion. The clinic was just around the corner from her house in a poor urban community. And Lecrae says that day a part of us died. And like many who have participated in abortion, Lecrae sensed at that time that it was wrong. He says that it was me choosing my life over yours. Lecrae kept a picture of his ex-girlfriend as a secret memorial to their unborn child and one day as he tells the story he just broke down he broke down in tears of guilt and shame and in addition to confessing his sin to god and to others he decided to voluntarily share his story both to help others and as a part of his own path to hope and healing in christ Millions of people are in the same exact place of post-abortion guilt and trauma and shame. Every year, 73 million abortions occur around the world. In the U.S., the lives of around 2,500 precious children end every day. Today, 2,500 precious children Lives ended through abortion in the U.S. And those abortions are overwhelmingly followed, not with pride that celebrates abortion, but with the guilt of having participated in taking the life of another human person. There are studies. The studies show that half of the women who have had abortion believe it is morally wrong. I read about a teacher in her 40s who shared that advising her daughter to have an abortion led to a long suicidal siege in her own life and that she's not over it yet. It's been said, I read this as well, that the guilt and regret of abortion is the most common human experience for our generation and that this has been true for the past 30 years. It is true for millions in society. It is true for many in the church. Some of you need to hear you're not alone. And we all need to hear what does God's word have to say? What hope is there for those burdened by the guilt of sin? And in particular after the prophetic words we heard this morning, I am all the more eager to turn our attention to these verses in 1 Corinthians 6. These verses describe the reality of sin some of the dominant iniquities and evils that fill the earth, sexual immorality, idolatry, greed, drunkenness, and more. In our day, we have seen sexual immorality in the rise of pornography, the celebration of homosexuality. We've seen the, we've seen the increase of alcohol abuse and drunkenness all the more since covid Greed is built into the very fabric of the American dream. Revilers, uh, those who speak contemptuously of others, revilers, are everywhere in political engagement and on social media. I hope you see how profound and relevant Scripture is. The Word of God is in pointing to the great problems in every generation. You might think, what does this old book have to do with my life today? Friends, you will not find anything more relevant to your life. You will not find anything more relevant to the condition of the world today than what you will find in this book, the Word of God. Although we're all guilty of particular sins and see ourselves in the sins that are described here, we have all sinned and deserve God's judgment The ten terms that are used in these two verses are used to describe individuals whose lives are persistently characterized by these sins. Paul is talking about an entire way of life. And he does not say that they all used to live this way prior to Christ. But that some of them did. And such were some of you. Now the great concern of this passage is... Not primarily with the avoidance of particular sins, but with entering or inheriting the kingdom of God. Paul's concern is to emphasize that those who go on living just as the world does are in fact not Christians at all. And some of you, I know, need to hear that very message today because of the life you are living. Because of the decisions that you made even this week. Verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then comes the warning. Do not be deceived. We are so easily self-deceived. God says don't be deceived. You think I can live however I want to live. And say that I am a Christian. Friend, do not be deceived. And Paul repeats this urgent and eternally weighty truth in verse 10. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Will you inherit the kingdom of God? Do you belong to the kingdom of God? How do you enter the kingdom of God? Too many people think that the way to inherit the kingdom, and there's a way that this passage even could be misread, Too many people think the way to inherit the kingdom is to be a good person. If I avoid sexual immorality and drunkenness and greed, or to take our topic today, if I avoid participating in abortion and avoid defending abortion, then I will go to heaven. Here's the the problem with that way of thinking. There will be many in hell who never committed adultery. There will be many in hell who were not homosexuals, who were never drunk, who were kind to others, who were not revilers. There will be be many pro-life people who oppose abortion, who yet do not enter the kingdom of God. There is something eternally More important than the avoidance of particular sins. And that is namely ensuring that you belong to the kingdom of Christ. And we can only inherit the kingdom if we have been, verse 11, washed, sanctified, and justified. Every single one of us needs that. And this washing, this sanctification and justification can only happen, as the verse says, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. The Lord Jesus Christ died for our sins. He did it that we might inherit the kingdom of God by grace. He did it that we might be redeemed to a new way of living through the blood of Christ and by the power of God. And so this passage is ultimately a passage of hope, It's a passage of hope because it speaks to how the gospel of Jesus Christ rescues and heals and transforms the greatest of sinners. Sinners like you and me. Paul says, and we love this sentence and rejoice in it, and such were some of you. There will be those in heaven who are guilty of all the sins we most despise. There will be racists, murderers, prostitutes, and drug dealers. Those who once were these things, those who committed these things. There will be those whose drunk driving led to the death of others, those who sexually abused others, those who stole from the elderly, those who mocked the disadvantaged. Those who participated in abortions and those who performed many abortions. Do you realize that? It's a description of the redeemed. Do you understand the meaning of grace? Do you understand the whole meaning of Christianity? Paul says, such were some of you. And remember the life of Paul himself. He explains in 1 Timothy chapter 1 that he persecuted the church of God. And he says in Acts 9, the same thing as well. There's a description of that persecution. The man who wrote these words had the blood of Christians on his hands. He persecuted the church. He was a reviler. He was a blasphemer, a persecutor, a murderer. He says, such were some of you and such was I. But he says, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. First Timothy 1 Timothy 1.15 The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. This is the gospel. The righteous wrath of God was poured out upon His beloved Son the Lord Jesus Christ thereby upholding the justice of God that must punish sin and simultaneously rescuing sinners who deserve only judgment. We can imagine that when Paul entered heaven, he did so to the joyful cheers of those he killed. He entered heaven to the joyful cheers of the family members of those who lost loved ones that he had murdered. This is how the gospel works. And such were some of you. I, in my prep this week, I went and read a Charles Spurgeon sermon on this particular passage. Glorious. Every, Spurge, every Spurgeon sermon, just wonderful. He says this passage illustrates the great power of the gospel. And I need to share with you a, a section of what he shares. He says, if nobody were saved except the better sort of people who have never openly offended, then the quibbler would say to us, that is a very poor religion of yours. It is suitable for the moral, the sober, and the chaste. But what good is it to a poor fallen world where there are so many real sinners of the greatest kind? But the Lord seems to have said, I will stretch out my hand And I will save some of the very chief of sinners in order that throughout all time it may be known that my gospel can affect the salvation of all sorts of sinners, even the most degraded. However depraved and fallen they may be, they cannot have gone beyond the reach of the gospel of my son. And then Spurgeon says this, Is not that a glorious fact? Oh, when I think of some of you big sinners whom the Lord has saved under my ministry, I stand on this platform and with the utmost confidence cry to the guiltiest sinners who may be present. Come along with me, whoever you may be. I have a gospel that is just suited to you. I can say, come, you who are moral and refined, you who have never gone into any gross sin, here is a gospel just suitable for you. But I am also glad to be able to add, come along, you who have raked the very gutters of hell with your iniquities. Here, Here is that which can wash you and make you white as the newly fallen snow. Let every sinner hear today. I have a gospel for you. There is a gospel for you. A gospel that can wash you. A gospel that can cleanse you. A gospel that can make the foulest clean. A gospel that makes sinners like me whiter than snow. It is is for this reason that it must be emphasized that we are not just a pro-life people. We are a gospel-centered, grace-proclaiming, kingdom-inheriting, such were some of you pro-life people. And as we address particular sins, including the great injustice and iniquity of abortion, we as the church of Jesus Christ need to do so in a way that is distinct from the world. Even from those unbelievers who are pro-life, whom we thank God for and at times labor alongside in the cause of life. The priorities of the kingdom inform our pro-life engagement as a church, as the people of Jesus Christ. Our witness as a church is not a partisan witness. It is not even mostly a witness to morality. It is a gospel witness, a witness to the kingdom, a witness to the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. You can think about it this way. When it comes to abortion... There is a message that our nation most needs to hear. And there is no political party or secular book or non-Christian voice that has that message of first importance. But the church of Jesus Christ does have this message. It is the message of the gospel. It is the message of free grace and salvation in Jesus Christ. It is the message of how sinners can be cleansed and transformed to live their lives for the glory of the God who made them and owns them and sent his son for them. We need to engage the issue of abortion with this message of the gospel front and center. How do we apply the gospel to the issue of abortion? Well, in the remaining time here, I want to make three applications. And what it means to apply, to be, to be gospel-centered and pro-life. To apply the gospel to our convictions in this area. First, it means we affirm the centrality of the gospel. It is tempting in any number of areas. And sometimes we see this as, as pastors and the ways that Christians can be vulnerable in various ways. It is tempting to become single-issue people. Uh, In which some particular issue becomes the thing that we are most passionate about. Again, I emphasize that this happens in many different areas. But Paul does not do that with any of these sins. And scripture does not do that with any area of social injustice. Paul's great concern is for sinners to enter the kingdom of Christ. And to live in keeping with what it means to be a follower of Christ. Later in chapter 15 of this letter, 1 Corinthians, he tells them, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. We certainly must engage Issues of justice. Including abortion. But we do so in a way that refuses to make anything other than the gospel our central passion. Our boast is the cross. Our boast is in Christ. He is our passion. And the church must never take any social cause. Even ones we appropriately feel very deeply about. The cause of life. We can never make it the main thing. The main thing is the glory of God in the salvation of sinners through the substitutionary death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here is some, here's some gospel-centered perspective from John Piper who has done so much to advocate for the unborn. He says this, Far greater than the danger of abortion is the danger of hell. Okay, far greater than the danger of abortion, which takes human life, is the danger of hell. Rescuing people for eternal life is more crucial and more loving than rescuing babies from abortion. In other words, we care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. And he says this, I think it is precisely this maintenance of spiritual proportion that keeps in clear view that our citizenship is in heaven and we're rescuing lost people as we wait for our savior. That spiritual proportion, that maintenance of spiritual priority and proportion is what gave us Christian credibility over decades in the cause of life rather than simply sinking down to the level of being a world-oriented band of do-gooders. All right, it will be over my dead body that Covenant Fellowship Church becomes a world-oriented band of do-gooders. Now we have always been and we remain to this day a gospel people. And so let us ensure that Christ and him crucified is indeed our greatest passion. You can put it like this by way of application. What issue upsets you the most? What is it that you tend to feel most deeply about? What disturbs you and grieves you the most? And I share this because I am concerned that some who rightly care greatly about the pro-life cause and other societal ills, I'm concerned that some have functionally or are in danger of functionally abandoning the centrality of the gospel in their hearts and in their minds. Friends, our citizenship is in heaven and our greatest passion is to see more and more sinners inherit the kingdom of God and be rescued from the judgment we deserve. So first, it means we affirm the centrality of the gospel. Second, it means that we extend mercy and hope To the wounded and sinful. The application of the gospel to our pro life convictions means that we must extend mercy and hope. One of the main things that we need to say in our message about abortion is that there is forgiveness in Christ for every sin. However broken your life, there can be healing. However despairing your life, there is hope. However sinful you may be, there is complete atonement and full forgiveness for all who repent of their sin and rely on Christ alone for salvation. Christ died for our sins. And for those who have trusted in him, free forgiveness and full forgiveness is yours. For those who trust in him, he has cast your sins into the depths of the sea. He has removed them as far as east from is the west. He declares that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You have a savior in the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore when we talk about abortion, we offer healing and forgiveness and eternal hope to post-abortive men and women. There are There are many Christians who formerly took innocent life. There are many Christians who participated in the killing of the unborn. And we must never minimize the seriousness of this sin. We must never minimize the reality of the ongoing tragedy of the killing of the unborn in our own nation. And yet we can truly say, even as we consider this reality among those who are now Christians, we can say, and such were some of you. And such were some of you. Not are some of you, but were some of you. This this used to be who you were, but a change has come into your life. A change has happened by the power of God. And by the grace of God, we can go on after saying, and such were some of you. We don't stop there. We don't say, just think about what you once were. By the grace of God, we can go on and say, as the verse does, but you were washed. You were washed. And there are, in fact, three glorious realities in verse 11. Let all who are guilty of great sin of any kind hear this truth. Let all who are sinners Every one of us, hear this glorious truth. Let all who have had abortions or participated in them and have now trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of all your sins, hear this truth. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. This verse is absolute, glorious gospel truth. In the original, that the one contrastive conjunction we see there, the word but, it's repeated three times in the original before each one of those phrases. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified. Emphasizing the radical, dramatic, transformative work of God in your life. He has done it. And let every Christian hear this truth spoken over you by the Father. You were washed. You you were washed. You have been cleansed, fully cleansed, purified by the blood of Jesus Christ. The stain of sin has been removed. You have been washed and you were sanctified. You were sanctified. It means you were set apart from the world as holy to God. It means you're no longer who you once were. The old is gone. The new has come. Your past no longer has mastery over you. Your sin no longer defines you. You have been sanctified and you've been justified. The great doctrine of justification. You have been made righteous in Christ. God has counted us righteous, the one who bore our sin, so that now when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life in our place. God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's the doctrine of justification. We extend... Mercy and hope to the wounded and the sinful. And then, third and last, it means that our engagement, applying the gospel to this area, means that our engagement on the issue is marked by a spirit of humility and love. We must engage this issue as a matter of biblical justice. We must pray. We must speak. We must act for the unborn. There may be some among a younger generation who have noticed it's quite fashionable to speak to particular areas of justice, but I can assure you that if you speak to this area of justice in our day, it's not going to win you the applause of the world. We saw even this last week, Tony Dungy, former NFL coach, speaking at the March for Life, and you see how so many turn against him and revile him. It is... Not a popular stance and we need to be a courageous people who are willing to take a clear stance and to speak up and to act for the unborn in the cause of life, standing against this great injustice of our day, the shedding of innocent blood. How can we be unmoved by it? How can we not feel deeply about it? How can we not reflect God's heart to see justice done? And yet, our engagement needs to be marked by humility and love. Humility because such were some of us. Such were some of us. Because we know ourselves to be the chief of sinners. And that therefore informs the flavor of our engagement. And our engagement needs to be marked by love as Paul will explain later in this same letter in chapter 13, because love is a great fruit of the Spirit of God at work in our lives, because we follow our Lord who commands us to love even our enemies. I make this point because it's not hard to find angry, self-righteous, pro-life advocates who engage this issue not with the wisdom from above, as James 3 says, which is peaceable and gentle, but engage in a way that is what James 3 describes as earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. I thank God that posture has not marked the pro-life movement as a whole, and for the many faithful Christians who have engaged with both courage and gentleness, with both truth and grace, but that is what we must press on to be. The, the way we talk about abortion should invite those who have had abortions and those who are considering abortion to talk with us about it. Okay, the way we talk about it should invite them to talk with us about it. And in too many cases, people are afraid that they will encounter self-righteous, angry outrage from Christians. And I fear at times they are right. Friends, we need to show a better way. There's a girl... uh, who was in college, named Nicole, who was raped by an angry ex-boyfriend. And when she found that she was pregnant, she thought, what will my church think? Will my family be shunned? Panicked, she set up an abortion for the first available date. Um, At the time that I read about her story, uh, she still hadn't told anyone in her church that she had considered this and that she had had an abortion. She would even say that she was pro-life. And she was asked why she didn't tell anyone in the church. And she said that in her experience, Christians are more likely to accept a convicted criminal than a woman who has had an abortion. The church needs to be so careful, wise, use great care in the message we are sending to women. We are are not cultural warriors who join in the yelling and the name-calling and the sinful anger. We are a church that welcomes sinners. And we engage this issue and every issue with convictional kindness, with compassionate courage. With the aroma of Jesus Christ. We have an extraordinary opportunity in this area. In our day to be the people of Christ. Both in how we stand firm upon the truth. And how we do so in a way that is gospel centered. And marked by a love for others. And by the humility that fits us as the people of Christ. There's a campaign called Silent No More. It's a non-denominational campaign christian effort with no political or legal agenda it's called silent no more it involves christians seeking to make the public aware of the devastation abortion brings to men and women Uh, the campaign they say seeks to expose and heal the secrecy and silence surrounding the emotional and physical pain of abortion they encourage people who are hurt after abortion to attend Uh, Abortion aftercare programs and they invite those who are ready to voluntarily break the silence by speaking the truth about abortion's negative consequences emotionally, physically and spiritually. I was on their website this week, thousands of women and men have shared their abortion testimonies with a number being shared in high schools and universities. And these public testimonies, like Lecrae's testimony, have helped countless women and men find healing and have helped others avoid making decisions that harm themselves and others. In a world in which women are being lied to and told that this is a matter of health care, what they need to hear is that this is always a decision that involves self-harm, And self-destruction. In addition to harming and taking the life of another. If you're at a point where you might be ready to share your story. We as pastors would love to receive that. Because there is so much good that can come as Paul models in 1st Timothy 1 from remembering his sin and from sharing it and saying, yet to me, the grace of God overflowed. These testimonies magnify the power of grace that washes, that sanctifies, and that justifies us in Christ. There is a woman in the church who courageously and humbly offered to share her powerful story today and we wanted you to hear it and so Honey Muir can you please come forward and share with us.
1: I'm not gonna stand on my toes I hope you can see me. Good morning church. My name is Honey Muir. Three weeks ago during our uh, week of prayer we studied Psalm 145 together and I'd like to start by reading verses 1 to 4. I will extol you my God and King and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless your name and praise you forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. I am here today to declare the mighty acts of the Lord. In 1984, I was two years out of high school, living with my boyfriend, Steve, and I found myself pregnant. After, um, I'm sorry, at first we were excited because we thought we were in love. Steve told his boss that I was pregnant and that we planned to get married and have the baby. His boss thought we were crazy for even thinking we could take care of a child when we couldn't barely take care of ourselves. We had a very volatile and destructive relationship, and his boss knew it. He told Steve, we had to get an abortion. When Steve told me this, I was so upset and I kept thinking, no way, I'm not doing that. But it was clear that Steve had changed his mind and he was doing his best to get me to do the same. After a while, I started to believe he could be right. We were a mess. Steve was physically abusive. We drank heavily and used drugs regularly. On top of all that, I really had no idea how to take care of a child and all these things added up to a convincing argument to go ahead and get an abortion. About a week later, I went to the local Planned Parenthood for a pregnancy test and exam. While the doctor was examining me, he told me that the child inside me was 10 weeks gestation, and if I didn't have an abortion this week, I would not be able to have one. He never mentioned any alternatives. It seemed he hadn't even considered that I might not want an abortion. At 19 years old, I was frightened, and intimidated, so I scheduled an appointment with the nurse. That Thursday, February 16th, I went back to the clinic. Steve dropped me off at the door and went to spend time with his friends. Even though I was waiting in a room with a group of women of different ages and ethnicities, I felt all alone and frightened. But by this point, I felt there was no turning back. As a side note, now when I go to Uh, pray at Planned Parenthood, and participate in the 40 Days for Life campaigns, I think about the women going in for abortions. I believe many are in desperate situations and are doing something they don't really want to do. But I think that once a woman crosses that line, making a decision to do what she thought she would never do, it is very hard to turn back. Our prayers and voices need to be filled with compassion and grace, as we asked the Spirit of God to intervene and give them the courage to protect their babies and leave the clinic, even if they're thinking there's no turning back. I was called into another room where I was given value. While the nurse waited for the drug to take effect, she counseled me on different types of birth control that were available. I was then taken to the room where the procedure would be done. The atmosphere felt cold and impersonal I was told to lie on my back and look at the picture on the ceiling (laughs) (laughs) because they didn't want me to see the table next to me, which had a large jar with a tube coming out of it that would hold the remains of my baby's body. (laughs) The procedure didn't take long, but it was more uncomfortable than I was prepared for. In the recovery room, I felt sick and weak, and I wanted to get out of there. My sister picked me up and took me home. The next day, Steve moved to Virginia to live with his parents, and my life went on. This is what abortion does. It not only takes the life of a child, but often destroys the relationship of the parents as well. Early in January 1987, my beautiful, I'm sorry, (laughs) early in January of 97, my sister Mary, who is beautiful, invited me (laughs) to visit Covenant Fellowship Church. Although I was living, I'm sorry, I can't even see up here, my eyes are water. Uh, Although I was living a reckless and selfish life, I had begun to feel an increasing need for God in my life. The church was different from what I had grown up with. But I liked it. People seemed happy, sang with emotion, raised their hands, clapped their hands, and I couldn't help but feel that they had something that I didn't. The words to the songs moved me to tears, but I didn't know why. I struggled because I felt like if I did this God thing, I would have to give up a lot of things that I liked. I also thought about all the things I had done in my life, like having an abortion. I wasn't sure how all that would fit together, but I kept coming back to church. In fact, I couldn't wait to get to church each Sunday, even though I continued to live my, my wild and foolish lifestyle throughout the week. On Sunday, April 5th, I went to church and the usual feelings came over me. During worship, Senior Pastor Bill Patton prayed a prayer and I was totally shocked because the words he was praying were what I was feeling in my heart. I opened my eyes and I said to myself, If anything happens today, just go with it. Don't hold back. (laughs) At the end of the message, Bill said he believed there were people in the room who needed to get right with God. I knew he was talking about me. He said he would call us forward after we sang another song. It seemed like it was taking forever for him to call us forward. I could not wait any longer, so I just went down on my own. (laughs) I couldn't sing. I just knelt on the floor, and through tears I prayed, Oh, God, make me white as snow. Make me white as snow. Make me white as snow. As I was praying, I felt someone next to me with her arm around me, and I wondered, is this an angel? (laughs) I opened my eyes, and I peeked to see a woman with a huge pregnant belly. She wasn't an angel, but... To me, she was a gift of mercy sent by God to comfort me. At the time, I didn't really think much of the fact that she was pregnant, but as I wrote this testimony, it struck me that as I was asking God to cleanse me from all my filthiness, a young woman who had had an abortion, God sent a pregnant woman to comfort me. I didn't fully understand everything that happened, but I knew I was changed. What I did know... I'm sorry, what I didn't know as well was that I was one week pregnant. When I found out I was expecting, I thought, this is really crazy. Here I am, a brand new Christian. How can I be pregnant? I'm grateful that I was a Christian at this point because even though I had told myself that I would never have another abortion, I don't know what I would have done as an unbeliever if I were in hard circumstances and was faced with another unplanned pregnancy. Even though I had just become a Christian, I knew I could trust God and I felt I would have a lot of support from my family and my church. I considered adoption, but after I felt my daughter moving inside me, I I knew that God had intended this child for me. I also trusted that someday he would have an excellent husband for me and a wonderful father for my child. Although as a single and pregnant, I always felt the love and support of the people in church. On Christmas Day of 1987, my beautiful Melissa was born. The first years were very hard. I often struggled with the feelings of being punished by God for having an abortion and all the other ugly things I had done. Even though I knew God loved me and forgave me, I thought perhaps he didn't love me as much as some other Christians. I had had to work through things like understanding the love of God. God is my father, God's acceptance of me. God is always good and always doing good for me no matter what my circumstances look like. These are a few of the areas where the guilt and shame of having an abortion would creep into my relationship with God. Over time, I learned that our circumstances aren't a reflection of God's love for us. God is faithful, and he knows our weaknesses and our shame, and he wants us to know he loves us in spite of it all. We are his in Christ, and that is true healing and life. During that time, I lived with my parents, and they were great, but as much as they helped me, they couldn't take the place of a husband and father. However, it was during this time that I learned that I could depend on God And that he was a father to the fatherless. I also learned early in my Christian walk that when we repent and believe in Jesus' death on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, we are completely forgiven. Nothing in our past or present or future will remain unforgiven. Nothing is too big or too horrendous for God to forgive not even the act of abortion, whether you're an unbeliever or a Christian at the time. When God forgives, he forgives it all. In March of 91, I married Jim Muir. (laughs) Before we got married, Jim and I talked about all of this. He knew my history, and he showed me nothing but grace and acceptance and encouragement. He is my best friend, and he is the best of men. And he is the only father Melissa has ever known. God's faithfulness is evident in how he worked all things together for good in my life, even when things were hard. In February of 92, we had our twin sons, Daniel and Michael, and in July of 96, our youngest son, Jeffrey, was born. We now have a wonderful son-in-law, Jesse. Jesse and two amazing daughters-in-law, Lindsay and Lily. And they have given us one of the best gifts this life has to offer, our grandchildren. Jackson, Jace, Sophie, and Gilbert with a little grandson to come in May. God has been merciful and kind to me. Now I am an advocate for the unborn and their parents. We need to protect the humanity and value of children in the womb. I want to be a voice for the voiceless, and I also want to love and help the mothers and fathers facing unplanned pregnancies so that they can know that there is help and hope for them and their children, and there is life and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. In a few weeks, I will be leading a Bible study for any women who have had an abortion. We will spend time in God's word, processing through past decisions and coming to understand the love and grace of God you can contact or you can call the church and get my contact information from them if you're interested in in uh, participating in the study. Uh, As um, Psalm 145 goes on to say, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all he has made. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh praise his name forever and ever thank you
0: honey thank you for your courage your humility your example you shared that you want to be a voice for the unborn and a voice that helps others and through what you have shared today God's going to use in great ways I woke up this morning, sat out of bed. First thing, prayed for honey because I knew she had the most difficult assignment of the day. And um, honey, your life is a a trophy of the grace of God. Only God could write a story like this. And he's written stories like this throughout our lives. It may be that you're at a place where you're not quite ready or prepared to stand in front of hundreds of people and share your story, but maybe you are at a place where you'd be willing to be in a, a private study with a few other women where you can experience help and healing. If so, please talk to Honey and consider being involved in in that study. I want to invite the band forward. So that we can close in song. Because we must sing. To our great and glorious savior. And I'd like to invite all of you. To please stand. First Corinthians 6.11. Is a verse. That each one of us. All to take with us. As we celebrate. What God has done. In our lives. Not only for me not only for honey, but for every one of us in Christ, God has acted. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Because our Savior shed His blood for us, We have each one of us in Christ been washed whiter than the snow. We stand forgiven. We stand redeemed. And we cannot give glory to ourselves. We give all glory and praise to God and his grace that has done this glorious thing in our lives. And we lift our voices in song praising the Savior who has redeemed us and made us his own and has washed us Let's lift our voices to the Lord.